0: Welcome to Scene Change, a podcast by the National Federation of the Blind's Performing Arts Division. All about equality, opportunity, accessibility, and the arts. Here, you'll learn adaptive techniques from performers in the know. We are changing what it means to be blind, one stage at a time. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Scene Change. Today will be an outstanding episode as I have the chance to interview an old friend and colleague in the Performing Arts Division about a field that we've not yet covered. Let's welcome today Katie Shelton from our Ohio affiliate, who is a music therapist actively working to change what it means to be blind in her job every day. Welcome to the show, Katie.
1: Thanks for having me
0: so take us back to your early years with music what was the first instrument you played um, was it was it not an instrument at all that you got involved in but but with choir what was what's your what's your musical background in its infancy
1: actually so to do that we're going to go back to my literal infancy so um when I was very, very young, like maybe two or three, I was getting services from the Cincinnati Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. So I was doing their whole early intervention program. Um, They were giving my parents resources. And at one point, a social worker recommended that we try this thing called music therapy. So my parents started taking me to um, these music therapy groups at the... Um, CABVI facility and they had a totally blind music therapist running these groups for um, children, their families, um, their siblings could come in whether they were sighted or blind and it was just a really nice way to get to meet other families and for the kids to work on those early independent skills. So I think that was really my first foray foray into music. then later on, I we kind of saw in the early years, like four or five, that I was a bit of a dabbler. I didn't really want to spend all my time just on one instrument. And that music therapist then later tried to teach me piano lessons. Um, I tried violin for a little bit. After trying those things, I really didn't get into having like a, a dedicated instrument until nine or ten. When I picked up clarinet for the school band, but I was also doing choir then and um, starting to kind of play around with piano a little bit and it just kind of continued on through my middle and high school years, I picked up guitar and in high school, I needed some extra credit, like service hour kind of things for student council and a lot of the things that my classmates were doing at the school were just not very accessible to me like they would um put window paint up for each month or something and update the calendar and it was all in print or it was involving like painting or something um decorating the gym for the school dances which i mean part of that could have been accessible but i just wasn't also that interested in it and Um, I was looking for something more aligned with my interests. Then my parents suggested I contact that music therapist that I had to see if she could use any volunteers. Um, And She said yes. So from freshman year all the way through senior year and part of even my first or second year of college, I was going there like once a month and volunteering. And it progressed from just watching and then in between sessions I'd run errands for her or I'd I'd wipe down some instruments with just a a Clorox wipe or something to by my senior year I was actually assisting some of the kids in like the recital and helping them play instruments and getting to be more hands-on. And about a year after I started volunteering that's when I kind of knew this was something I wanted to look into for my job. So um, I, I always like to to think on that because it's really kind of interesting to me that I was a music therapy client initially. Not a lot of music therapists have that particular experience, um, of actually being in the client position as well. So, and I think it helps kind of me, even though I was so young, knowing that and knowing I had this relationship with a music therapist myself helps me to, um, be a resource and be have like that have that insight for my clients.
0: That makes perfect sense. So, would you say that um, your uh, music therapist, who was also totally um, uh, was this person your sort of motivation for joining the field?
1: I think so. I she was a really great role model. Um, I still keep in touch with her every once in a while, um, and just it seemed like. I was watching how she would interact with these families and how they'd respond and it occurred to me that this was a blind person doing something that looked really cool and looked like it had an actual like an impact that i was really interested in and i thought okay well you know i can do this and she was a tremendous resource to me through high school i would ask her like hey, you know I'm looking at these two classes, which one do you think would be more beneficial for a music therapist to have? And I wanna do this thing or that thing for the summer, but they're at the same time, what do you think would be most beneficial for getting the skills I need before college? And that was a huge help and a huge leg up in some aspects of my training. So I'm very grateful to her for being such a great mentor. So it sounds like you pretty
0: much always knew that you wanted to jump into music therapy. Did you consider
1: any other careers, um, be they uh, musical or otherwise? I did. Um, I looked at music education and I also looked at just being um, like some other subject, teacher. I actually did teacher academy in high school, which was a program for juniors and seniors junior year you spend the time learning some like teaching basics and then in your senior year um, you make a portfolio to get some college credits and you also go out into schools and kind of student teach it's comparable to that so i had a long-term placement that was once a week for the whole school year in my senior year Um, and that was in a music ed general music class in I think I had first, second grade, and fifth grade. And then I also had some short-term placements, which were twice a week, but only for a couple weeks at a time. Um, And I really liked, kind of randomly, um, sixth grade science. So I was considering going down like the sixth grade middle school science and math kind of route. I'm not a very good math person, though. And for a while, I thought about doing some foreign language teaching. I was doing Spanish in high school, and I really liked Spanish. So I thought about doing that. Music ed eventually was kind of the front runner, and then it was a a choice between ed and therapy. Um, But it was leaning, I think, towards therapy, even from junior year on until like the end of junior year when I was pretty set on it.
0: Now, here's a really interesting question, because I know, um, you know, we've had uh, student or people who were uh, music ed students in the past. Could you explain the difference between music therapy and music ed and what um, at least helped you to make your decision um, for music ed over, or sorry, for music therapy over music ed?
1: So for music education, it's about teaching the musical skills so when you when you have a student in a music ed setting you're teaching more the notes you're teaching the rhythms you're preparing for a performance um, essentially throughout and in music therapy we do perform and i have a clip here of some recent performances that we had um, but we have more of the goal of looking at how can we use music to address non-musical goals. Um, there's a lot of debate within music therapy as to whether you can address musical goals in therapy. I personally think that you do, you can, but most of the time it's a non-musical goal. So, you know, and this isn't to say that other areas of life are not influenced by music ed. I think that they are. But the main goal in a music ed classroom is to prepare for a performance and build musical skills. And then those skills of, Communication and gaining some social skills in a band or a choir setting by working with your peers, those are kind of secondary. But in a therapy context, we are actually using the music to specifically address communication, cognitive skills, social skills, um, motor skills. And so it's less about preparing for a performance. And sometimes in music therapy contexts, we don't even have performances. We do do group work. Um, So we can have a choir, we can have an ensemble, but that's not necessary. Um, um, We also sometimes have like recitals for individual performances, but the main thing is we are using the music to work on something else.
0: I gotcha. So let's hear that clip that Katie mentioned. Uh, What is, is this one of your uh, classes that you were teaching, Katie? And is this sort of like an end of year performance or what is it that we're going to hear?
1: This is a clip of the ukulele ensemble that I recently started. This group started in June of last year, and it's had a couple changes in members, so it's still a pretty new group. Um, but these individuals are working on their fine motor skills and their social skills by learning this music. They're reading um, adaptive music, so I have a big poster board in this clip. In this clip, with um, color-coded letters to show them which chords to play, and then I'm I'm able to point to them with a drumstick to keep help them keep on track, and they make the changes on the ukulele so they're playing the chords in time.
0: Fascinating. Let's hear that right now. Wow, that was just just to envision you standing there pointing at these different colors um, as your students are able to just follow along and um, have this this, uh, recital and this performance. Now, I know everyone's going to be wondering, um, you know, how is a blind person keeping track of which color is which and where to point on this poster board? So please do um, enlighten our listeners.
1: Yeah, so we have um, kind of an interesting system. We have something called an Ellison machine, which they use in schools a lot, teachers will. And it basically will allow you to punch out big paper letters um, for like a bulletin board, or if you need just any sort of like poster or something. So that's how we make our letters. And what we found for me is that if we use cardstock, it's a thicker paper, so if we punch out the letters we need with cardstock even after we laminate our huge poster board with our huge poster board size laminator we I can still feel where these letters are even with the drumstick so I can just slide the drumstick along and know where the le- next letter is and then I can use a hand on the other hand on the side of the poster board to find where the next line is so even though I can't Look at the letters very well because they're they're just not my reading modality. I can still have a tactile component to help keep my sighted clients and sometimes even my sighted coworkers who are playing with them on track.
0: That is really creative. I know our listeners are going to love that and definitely um, steal that hack for you know whenever it may come in handy for them. Um, definitely love learning about. Uh, different forms of uh, alternative techniques. That's what the show is all about. So um, you mentioned that you have some sighted clients and then sighted colleagues. Do you have any blind clients or colleagues
1: at the moment? I do. I have one individual who I think recently lost um, the remainder of their sight, Um, but they were pretty significantly blind before. And then I have another person with a cortical visual impairment that I work with, and I have quite a few that have lesser degrees of vision loss. They are still considered visually impaired even if they're not familiar with that terminology themselves. Um, So a lot of times um, blindness and visual impairment will co-occur along with something else. So an individual might have Cerebral palsy and be a wheelchair user, or they might have Down syndrome and um, not necessarily present as someone that is blind because they are just wearing glasses. But often, a lot of these clients that I work with, even if it's not directly stated on their documentation or anything, um, there are considerations I need to make, like I need to make their music larger for them, or we might need to um, adapt some materials that we use in their sessions so that they can see them better. Um, I don't have anyone who reads Braille. Um, the two individuals I mentioned that have more significant um, degrees of blindness. Um, one is younger, like within I think our age group, but um, that individual doesn't know Braille. And then the other one um, became blind later in life. So I don't have any Braille readers like right now. But um they these these clients are some of my favorite to work with because they can really, I think dive into the music. they don't I noticed they don't get as distracted as some of my other clients and that might just be their personalities um, not necessarily anything to do with visual distractions, but I really enjoy working with them.
0: So this brings us to a question about challenges in the field as a blind person. It sounds like you've um, had, a good amount of support, um, you know, from your own blind mentor, um, who's also a music therapist. Um, and then, you know, I, I would imagine that you could relate, I, I'm sure that you can relate to all of your students as someone who uh, was was a part of, you know, a music therapy program before, but then perhaps even more so to your blind students as a uh, blind person who's gone through music therapy, mm-hmm. is this something that, um, I guess, are these, experiences of yours? Um, Have these experiences made it easier for you? And second part to that question, uh, even if it has been easier for you, are there still challenges that um, exist within the field?
1: Yeah, um, I think that in terms of building relationships with clients, I think that I have perhaps an advantage. I think I do. Um, I can't fully quantify that, but Um, they, you know, they always say in therapy, like if you've been to therapy, you know what it's like. Um, and often in, in therapeutic professions, students will be required to go to therapy so that they know what it's like to be a client. Music therapy doesn't have that requirement. So I think in that sense, my experiences have helped, um, in school. I found that there were a couple challenges just because I was the first blind student in my program. Um, most of my supervisors had never worked with a blind student or a blind music therapist um, my professors knew of my mentor which helped a little bit um, because we didn't have that initial fear that i couldn't do the program but it involved a lot of trial and error especially when i got into the in-person we we call them practicum classes where you're going out to different facilities and you're Basically practicing how to do music therapy with actual clients, so um, there were just questions of how do I document visual information that that I was not going to pick up, and these supervisors were used to seeing, you know, what could I substitute to show that I was still paying attention and being responsive to what clients were showing me, but in a way that I could access because facial expressions were not going to be it. Um, I also had not so much issues with reading music. I have a pretty good ear, um, so I've been able to learn and memorize pretty much most of my repertoire, but um, I've had to learn how to teach printed music because that's what most of my clients read. I don't have any other Braille readers. So,, um, having visual aids and knowing how to adapt those visual aids so that they have Braille on them so that they're accessible to the visual learners, but also myself, that was something I needed to figure out. and I've got a handle on it now, but it took some trial and error. Um, and navigating disability in the these practicum sessions. That was something that I struggled with initially too. Um, I think that in therapy there's often this um, this sense that a therapist can't or shouldn't disclose anything and as a young student I thought oh well this isn't this session isn't about me so I can't talk about it it's about the these people that we're working with Um, and I don't think the supervisor had at the time um, understood enough or felt comfortable, one of the two, of, of walking me through that and why it was okay. So they agreed and then it became this this sense of, oh, I can't talk about it because it's not about me here. It's about the clients. Um, but of course, you know, they're going to know. Um, I was on a, a locked um, memory care dementia unit in a nursing home and these residents would ask questions and they would notice things and it really caught me off guard. Um, Now my approach is to just have it come up in conversation and if it comes up in conversation, I'm happy to talk about it. And I think that that really helps me feel more at ease because then it's not this um, secret or anything and blindness isn't something that we need to have be a secret. And I've had, I had to just learn that, you know, answering a client's question about me isn't going to shift the focus of the therapy onto me. It's going to still be about them. But then that also creates some nice um, relationship dynamics because then they understand that I have a disability, too, just like them, um, even if it's a different type of disability. And then I can open up and, as it's appropriate, say, oh, you know, I've been to therapy before. And, you know, that helps show them that maybe they're not alone or I understand some of the things that they might be going through in some ways, even if not all of the things they're going through. So it it those were some of my challenges. Um, but there were a lot of good things that happened in school, too.
0: So you've worked with clients uh, later in life as they you know face things like dementia. But then you've also worked with clients in elementary school. Um do you still work with clients of all age, of all ages and have their reactions to blindness uh, been similar or different?
1: Yeah, so um, in school, if anyone is a music therapy student, they're going to be required to work with older adults, um, with children, and in a mental health setting. Those are the three requirements that we have in training. Most of my work has been in in schools with kids. That's where I did my internship. Um, And then when I have gone to work, I've worked for about three and a half years. Um, Most of that has been with adults, but I do work with kids too. Um, My youngest right now is four. She just turned four and my oldest client is in their 70s. So I work with everyone kind of across the lifespan, which is really cool. and it really depends. I have some young kids, like the four year old, I don't think realizes anything um, is different about me. And they're not in a position to ask those questions yet. Um, I have had kids that are five or six ask. Um, and sometimes they're kids that are not my clients. They'll be kids that are coming around the building with my coworkers and then they ask questions. Um, and then. Older adults, it also depends on, on them, too, and what they're focused on and what they might be aware of. But I think kids are very inquisitive, and I think the adults that I happen to work with are very inquisitive. Um, so I have a teenager right now who he's asked a lot of really good questions. Um, a lot of times I get the same questions from kids and adults in this particular setting, I think if I were in like a mental health setting, the adult questions might be a little different than what I might get from an elementary school student. But where I work now, it's usually, um, and they say it, and it, it, you can tell it's it's not meant in any rude way. They're just very curious. It's more like, um, why are your eyes like that? Um, do, do they hurt sort, those sorts of questions? So it's coming from a place of, of concern and curiosity. Um, I do have one client who we had to work through the fact that she had not seen anyone who was blind before, and she had not seen anyone with eyes that look like mine and we're okay now, but initially she thought they were a little creepy looking cause they're just a little, um, opaque. So um, we talked about how everyone has different disabilities and um, in you know kind of a group that she is a part of. And so this person uses a wheelchair and remember when she learned about the wheelchair because she hadn't seen many people in wheelchairs before either. and you know she's still your peer still participates in the group like you do and so my eyes look different, but I can still do these things um, with you together. So um, those are some of the interactions I have, but I think generally, at least where I work, everybody has been very willing to learn and willing to um, ask really great questions across from whether they're a child or an adult.
0: It sounds like you were able to find a really positive work environment, which is, um, it's 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 excellent for anyone, uh, but especially as a blind person, because sometimes finding work can be quite difficult. So could you tell us a little bit about, um, what that process was like, just finding, um, not only a position, but uh, finding the right fit where it was going to be a positive work environment and it's going to be somewhere that you could really thrive.
1: Yeah. So for music therapy, a lot of the positions are itinerant or they're travel based. So in a lot of cases, music therapists will go to client homes and they'll see clients in their own like living rooms or, um, Their own houses i obviously can't do that so i immediately started narrowing down my job search to facilities that were pretty self-contained so um, schools and different agencies that didn't require a lot of travel Um, initially in my first year i did kind of go between both campuses of my workplace before they were combined into one but i was able to go with a coworker of mine, so we were on the same schedule and could just carpool um, between the two. So I wanted to find a, a facility that was not going to require me to travel. And then I also wanted to find a facility that would be receptive and understand that there are some advantages to having someone in a therapist role that also understands the disability side of things. Um, and. I brought that into my interview, and I know that conventional wisdom is that you don't talk about disability before you show up. Um, I chose to disclose at the end of my phone interview, and I use that as kind of a metric of, are, are these people going to be open to working with me? Do they understand that this could be an asset that I bring to the table, or is it going to be a case of, well, we? We work with people that have all manner of disabilities, but you know we don't want to hire one. So that was something that I looked for. Um, and in my interviews, I had kind of all over the map, and I had some that gave me a Zoom or a phone interview, but I knew based on kind of the subtext, they couldn't outright ask questions about, um, you know, what would I do about this or that situation that was visual, but um, they, I could kind of tell they weren't going to give me the job. Um, And in this case, in the end of the phone interview, the person that ended up being my supervisor was just like, oh, well, we already have a music therapist that has a visual impairment, so we're probably used to at least some of it, you know, let's have you back for the in-person interview and we can talk more then, Um, which was more of the response that I was kind of hoping to get.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, So it sounds like they were already familiar um, Mm -hmm. with, you know, people of varying visual acuities. And so, you know, they were already going to be comfortable with it, which is really, really good. And that that also explains probably um, a little bit about, um, you know, part of the reason why you're able to have such a great experience is is that they were open-minded, you know, Enough to hire the first person, and then you know they're like, "Oh yeah, this is this is excellent." You know what I mean? Like you said, it's it's going to be an asset to the team. Um, it's going to bring a different form of, of diversity, um, and and uh, a different form of thought, which is really going to benefit um, the, the the clients you work with. So I'm really glad to hear about that. Um, I highly, uh, you know, encourage our listeners to to just be encouraged by that story because places like this do exist. You know what I mean? Um, did you have any other positive experiences while you were interviewing or was this the only one?
1: Um, I, I think that that was the most positive one. Right. I did have one other interview where they seemed okay. They didn't seem really nervous or off put by having me. Um, I just didn't get that particular job and I'm okay with that. Um, I was in brand new therapy. Actually, I wasn't even finished with my internship yet. So, um, I didn't get any sense that it was based on blindness that I didn't get that particular job. I just thought, you know, I'm a new therapist and that could happen to anybody. So, um, you know, sometimes even if you don't get a job, I feel like as long as you're, you know, nobody wants to be turned down for a job, but as long as you're being turned down for the same reasons anyone else would, um, that's not blind. I think that that's in its own way a a net positive experience.
0: Exactly. Because it's more about fit than that is about blindness. And that's just, that's just normal, you know, and it's good because you also wouldn't want to be accepted just because you're blind, because that could also be really awkward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, what's a day in the life? Uh, for those who don't know, I feel like, you know, we're really doing a deep dive into music therapy. But, you know, like, what's a day in the life for you? Um, how many students a day would you say, like, on average that you're seeing? What do you have to prepare? Um, are you playing? Are you teaching different instruments? Are you still going back to that, you know, uh, clarinet, ukulele, guitar, you know, back to, to, to your musical roots? Or um, is it largely vocal? What, what's a, a, what's your schedule like?
1: So it's a little different every day. Like, it's consistent <laughs> to <history>. me <laughs> is a little different. Um, So in terms of when I get there, I usually get there between 8.30 and 9 and I start my day. Um, Usually the first thing I do is I check my email and check in with my boss, make sure everything's kind of in normal, as normal as it can be. COVID's really kind of flipped everything upside down and it still is changing things Um, as we are heading back into more of what I'm used to pre-pandemic, but um, I'll check in, and then usually by nine or nine thirty, I'm starting to see my first client, um, depending on the day, and I do. Typically, I'd say some days are slower than others with absences and things like that, um, and again, COVID is still kind of playing a role in that, but. Um, Ideally, I'd I'd have at least seven sessions a day. The most I've ever had is 10, and that's a lot. So 10 is not ideal. I'd say between about six and eight is where I feel good. Um, And then in between those times, I will go back to my computer, I will enter documentation, which for us is also part of our billing. Um, So I will enter those notes. I will respond to emails. I will do um, assessments, which is like where we annually write up where we see a client's progress or we have quarterly reports that we do on each client as well. So I will do those. Um, And then in between, I might work on materials. Um, Recently, my department has implemented this kind of collaborative approach. So we have just a big spreadsheet of ideas that we all need done. Um, and I have found that it's becoming more difficult for me to make some visual aids that I used to make by myself. So um, it's kind of nice that way because then I can put um, on the spreadsheet, I need these visual aids for this thing I want to do with like this particular client or group of clients. And one of my sighted coworkers can make that for me in their free time. And then if they need something that's not as visual, um, like they need a song for a client that works on this specific thing, then I can maybe write that for them because that doesn't require me to do a visual task. So we kind of trade off based on skills and what we are able to do in our free time, um, meaning just you know between sessions. Um, usually I have, mostly individual sessions, but I have at least one group per day. Um, so like on Mondays I have my ukulele group on Tuesdays, I have a couple groups. I have like a music games group. We actually produce our own podcast. So we have a podcast group that meets on Tuesdays to do the, our interviews and our editing. Um, on Wednesdays, we have a couple movement based groups. Um, I have a group home of, of um, older ladies that I work with. So it's just like a different group every day or a couple groups. And then all the other sessions are individuals that I see for either, Most I think I only have one hour session. So um, most are 30 or 45 minute sessions. Oh, I forgot to answer your question about the instruments. Um, in terms of instruments, like every session is individualized, so it's a bit different for everybody. Um, I use guitar probably the most, so guitar and voice. Um, I don't use clarinet very much, but I will bring it out for some clients. Um, I'm getting more into using drum set in therapy, which sounds counterproductive to some, um, just because drums can be very loud. But I use a lot of hand drums, and I'm using more drum set lately. Um, So every office in our facility has some sort of keyboard instrument. I have an electric organ in mine. Um, most have pianos, but I have the organ. Um, and then we have guitars, we have ukuleles and a bunch of hand drums. Um, my office is the one, the only one other than our group space that has a drum set. So I'm fortunate in that regard. And then we have a bunch of small percussive instruments. So, um, it really depends on what each individual client wants to do, um, and what they're working on. And sometimes I'll go in and I'll just have a couple different options and then the client can choose, you know, do we want to do drums today? Do you want to write a song today? You know, and I'll have different options available for them.
0: So do you have the opportunity to learn new instruments on the job or are these um, like, did you already play the drums before? I don't, I don't think you mentioned the drums, but (laughs) I'm just, just curious.
1: Yeah. So, um, I've learned a lot of things during school. So in school, you'll pick up um, a bunch of things as you go. So I picked up ukulele during college. Um, During my last, I think, year of college, I did take a semester of drum set lessons. Ah. And in internship, I picked up electric bass. The good thing Mm -hmm. is, if you play guitar, um, ukulele, electric bass, and a couple of instruments are similar enough that you can pick them up as you go. Um, But there are other ones I've picked up along the way while I've worked here um, that I didn't get to to see before. So most recently, I had a client that um, wants, he wants to learn trumpet. And I got really lucky in the sense that an intern that I was supervising um, came to us who played trumpet. So um, she really was the one that taught him, but... I learned along with them so that when she was done with her internship, I could continue teaching this client. So I've picked up trumpet about, I think it's been about a year that I've played. Um, and I'm progressing at the rate of, you know, I'm at the point where maybe like someone that's been through a year of elementary school band. So I'm moving at a a pretty average consistent rate, but it's nice that I can kind of learn as I go.
0: That is nice. And not only that you can learn as you go, but that, you know, you have this opportunity to, to learn um, more instruments because, you know, it does seem like something that um, you're passionate about and that you really enjoy doing. So, um, that's that's really awesome that this is this career opportunity um, offers that to people. So, you mentioned COVID uh, when you were talking about your classes. So, I'm, I'm just curious to know... Um, real quick just how to cho- how COVID has changed your uh classes
1: they're not as different as they used to be um when COVID first hit we went completely online so we used Zoom um or for some clients we would use FaceTime we did a bunch of different things just to try to see as many people as we still could while they were at home um I did telehealth exclusively for about two months um And that was, that was not ideal. (laughs) It's, it was better than nothing, but I think everybody that did it and then came off of it is pretty well done with it. Um, and then by June, 2020, we were back in person. Um, and I'm still doing telehealth as well. Um, because we were slowly phasing people back into the building that we use. So, um, That was an interesting time because they were telling us, the research was saying, we shouldn't sing. um, We shouldn't um, share any objects because COVID might be transmitted through touching objects and then passing them between people. Um, We had to get really creative with groups because of the distance requirements for people to be socially distanced. Um, And not singing really changed things. Um, for us. So it was, we had to get really creative. So I remember we were trying to put some sort of schedule together for the clients that were in person with us. And it was, um, we had like a body percussion group and we had a flash mob group, which was like a dance party kind of thing. Um, And then we had just like a, a music games group. So how would how could we adapt the things that we did before to be within all these covid restrictions and still be therapeutic in some way um so we we pulled that off to the best of our ability it was really hard um but then thankfully as more has come out about covid we've been able to resume doing some things like we we're still social distancing now Um, most of my clients are not on telehealth anymore. I only have two that are still on telehealth, which is nice because telehealth exclusively especially could get really draining, at least for me. Um, so now I only have two, which is great. Um, everyone else is back in person and we're just now at the point where we're bringing small percussive instruments back out for people to play, um, because we're, we've learned that COVID isn't very super transmissible on objects, Um, we are still masking, so we've all had to learn how to sing through a mask and project through a mask, Um, and the more layers you add onto that mask, so, I mean, I use a filter personally, so if I have a filter in there, it's going to be even harder to project and to do it in a healthy way. Um, thankfully, with having so many therapists and interns around, we're able to sub out. So if our voice is getting tired, we can say, okay, I'm going to do one more song for the group, and then someone else can sub in. Um, that way no one's blowing their voice out. And um, I think other than that, it's just a lot of extra cleaning. Like we would clean before, but now we really we really clean between every group um, with just like high quality, like hospital grade disinfectant. Um, making, we're making sure everybody's trying to wash their hands and use sanitizer and, um, make sure everybody's kind of following the, um, contact tracing guidelines that are still in play. So it's, it's been different, but I think we're getting back to more of what we all kind of knew and liked before COVID finally. Slowly but surely, right?
0: (laughs) just you know, the name of the game, when you mentioned, um, learning to sing through a mask, it's something that I really hadn't even considered, um, because, you know, so often, like, you know, in performance style, it's okay for the, because the performer is so far away from the audience, they, you know, they don't have to wear the mask, but in a a setting like this, yeah, it is really important to, um, still be able to project through a mask, and I'm sure that is, that's really something on the, uh, you know, those abdominal muscles, so, um, that's just really fascinating to to consider and think about so my last question for you is what is the most fun part of your job
1: oh (laughs) (laughs) i think for me the most fun part is i really like working with the kids and families um And seeing how music can bring people together. And it works with adults, too, but I have a soft spot for watching kids and families. So I had a a group actually last night that um, it was a couple little girls who all have Down Syndrome and their parents. um, Two out of the three there were dads, which was really cool. And they were just so engaged in these little girls that had never seen someone else with their... Um, disability before we're becoming friends and like playing music together Um, they were helping each other just kind of unprompted and just watching these girls that might not do some of these things through outside of music come together in the music and and just be excited and be kids and play together was so nice Um, so I, I would encourage anyone that's interested in this field to kind of check it out and see if it might be for you because it's really rewarding and I, I enjoy it a lot. There's a lot of good things about it.
0: Yeah, that definitely comes through. Um, just uh, your passion for your work and how much you really do enjoy it. So um, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. Uh, we've certainly been able to see how um, you are using disability as an asset, I love that you use that word, um, you know, with your colleagues, with your employers, with your clients, you know, most of all, it's been really nice getting to know you um, more in the in the professional sense. I've, I've worked with you before and gotten to know you, but didn't know as much about music therapy. So really got to learn a lot more about the job and um you know, just the way that you're navigating things. And I think that it's really going to motivate our listeners um, to consider, uh, you know, another uh, option for work if, you know, if, if they hadn't known much about it before. So thank you so much.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, and thanks to our producer Shane Lowe, who uh, is going to do some uh, amazing editing and um, you know, chopping up of with this uh, episode. He's going to add in some fun effects and things like that for us. So thank you, Shane. Thank you to the entire Performing Arts Division podcast team. And of course, to you, our loyal listeners. This has been another episode of Scene Change. I'm Caitlin McIntyre, president of the National Federation of the Blind Performing Arts Division. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Scene Change. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website at nfb-pad.org. There you'll find links to our social media, membership, and resources for blind performers. Thanks to everyone who makes this show happen. Scene Change is produced by Shane Lowe, Joe Schuneman, Precious Perez, Chris Nussbaum, se Choi, and Aaron Jordan. With music by Ryan Strunk and Tom Page. Remember, you can be the performer you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. We'll see you next time.